Hi, I'm Ashley Cooley, a birth baby and sleep specialist and mom of three. There's so much information out there, right? This show is dedicated to helping you clear out the noise so you can figure out what will work best for your baby and your family. If you're looking to learn more about your baby, gain more confidence in your parenting, and get as much sleep as you can through it all, you've come to the right place. Bringing up baby is about to get a little easier. Welcome to the season two finale of the Bringing a Baby podcast. I apologize for a somewhat hoarser voice. I am recording this first thing in the morning before the kids are awake. Uh, birds are starting to chirp a little bit, but it's the only quiet time I'm going to have before getting this out. So here we go. Um, I am really excited for this episode and getting to share this with you and getting to introduce to you Dr. Rachel Olivier. She is a maternal and women's health researcher and practicing registered nurse. She currently works as a travel nurse on various acute medical surgical units across British Columbia and Nova Scotia, and is also employed as a nurse on the women's surgical unit at the IWK Health Center here in Halifax. She has also completed nursing work in both Zambia and Tanzania. Some of her previous awards include being named a Vanier Scholar and being recognized as one of Optimiz Magazine's top 100 healthcare leaders for 2021. In March of this year, and this is why she's here today, she completed her PhD in nursing at Dalhousie University, where her research focused on exploring sexual health after birth using feminist post-structuralism. Postpartum sexual health. I mean, right? We don't talk about this enough. We really don't. And I'm really excited to get to share this conversation that I had with Rachel. She's going to share parts of her research, um, give us kind of an idea of what she found, what should we do with this knowledge, but ultimately it really does come down to talking about it. And so we're starting the conversation. Here we go. Take a listen. Hi, Rachel. So nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Bringing Up Baby podcast. Thank you for having me. It's I'm so excited to be here. Yes, and I'm so excited. I can't wait to dive into this conversation. So I'd love it if you would you mind just starting telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to came to do this research. I started the nursing program at the University of British Columbia Okanagan in uh, 2012 and graduated from there in 2016. In terms of my practice, it's largely been a medical surgical focus. So that sort of means being on hospital units, caring for a wide variety of, of, of you know, uh, illnesses and, and uh, post-surgical patients. Uh, but my passion, most certainly, I think, in terms of clinical work and research work lies in women's and maternal health and, and gynecology. So I practiced as a registered nurse on the adult surgery unit in the Women's Health Tower at the IWK Health Centre in Halifax. I'm also a travel nurse on various medical surgical units and recently completed my doctor philosophy in nursing at the Dalhousie University School of Nursing, which was supervised by Dr. Megan Aston and Dr. Sherry Price. And mm -hmm. my research there focused on sexual health after birth, which is our, of course, our topic today. Um, but yeah, I think really for me, I, I feel so fortunate to really bridge teaching with clinical work with research uh, nursing has so many avenues and it's you know something I've, I've certainly remained passionate about since entering the profession mm. and yeah I'll be starting at Queen's as well the nurse practitioner program in the fall so yeah lots going on 
lots lots to be excited about so i'm very absolutely lucky. yeah that sounds that all sounds amazing uh and getting back to this research that you have uh, been doing with dr megan and dr Aston as your uh supervisors postpartum sexual health it feels like such a taboo topic doesn't it it's not something we typically talk about hear about and but we've all been there or we will be there at some point depending on who who's listening so i i mean tell us why why is it so important that we talk about this certainly and as you pointed out you know it's such a taboo topic it's so invisible but you know in doing this research and in kind of coming up with this research and you know what i wanted to look at um, it really was evident, you know, from the get go that this was something that people wanted to talk about. It's sort of mm -hmm. one of those things that I describe as a can of worms, where it's sort of, we don't always want to go there or know how to approach it. But then when it is, you know, that conversation is opened up, that's mm -hmm. really when people say, hey, yes, I want to engage with this. I want to talk about this. And with that, you know, clinically as a nurse, I saw that in my practice and then bridging that with research work. I really saw an opportunity to kind of go a little bit deeper with with this topic and to actually ask people, you know, how is that experienced? What does sexual health actually mean to people? And looking at the literature, there is, you know, when sexual health is explored after birth, it's oftentimes kind of from a physical perspective that looks at uh, when are couples resuming sexual activity after birth? Um, how often are they having sex after birth? Those sorts of questions, which are important, but mm -hmm. it was something that I really wanted to see from a different perspective and bring in, you know, not only that physical, but the mental, emotional, and social aspects of sexual health. And that's sort of where it all started. Gosh, amazing. So what, what did you find? What are they saying? Like, what are they? We, I mean, it's representation, but um, yeah, I'd love to hear what, what some of those findings have been. My findings were incredibly rich. I remember finishing the interviews and having so much. I said, oh my goodness, you know, that these stories and experiences are so rich. Mm. Um, people coming forward to participate, you know, really, I think, shared a lot. And I was so fortunate, I think, to, to be able to have those conversations. And, you know, in looking at sort of what is important physically, emotionally, there was really a mix within the findings. And, you know, when I, when I speak about my findings, I often center on three, three key topics. And the first was really focused on uh, how um, people sort of uh, created a new identity or made meaning of their bodies and their postpartum bodies and mm. how, how that was really tied to identity. Those really went together of sort of, you know, some people really said, you know, I'm kind of, they felt that their bodies were very new. It was sort of a transformed or body that they didn't recognize after birth and that was really tied to identity not only as you know a mother or a parent but as a sexual being mm -hmm. and how those kind of came together because oftentimes what you know when what my research showed was you know in society there's sort of this uh, what we call a discourse and sort of this norm in society that can desexualize postpartum bodies and mm -hmm. that sort of position certain body parts such as the breasts or the vulva or the vagina as either sexual or baby serving and participants challenged that. They said, you know, I can be both. I can be both a mother and a sexual being. But it wasn't always easy. And so that kind of was the part of identity of, you know, okay, I'm a partner or a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a worker. I'm, they, you know, had so many identities. And, you know, some of those shifted and some of those didn't. But mm. that sort of was the focus of the first theme was, was that relationship between the identity and, and the body. 
The second looked at sort of what in, went into feeling ready, whether that was, you know, physically, emotionally, what was quote unquote feeling ready for sexual mm-hmm. activity? What did that look like? And participants spoke about, you know, not only was it important for them to feel physically ready in terms of mostly their physical recovery and their pelvic floor recovery in, in mm-hmm. particular, mm-hmm. because that was something that participants shaped as, again, even that topic can be very taboo. But they said, yeah. you know what, this is something that's important to my health. This is something that, you know, we're talking about quite recently. You know, when my mother gave birth to me and my grandma gave birth to my mom, that, you know, pelvic floor was not. Oh no, that wasn't a thing. And, uh, and so, you know, it was, it was really interesting again, to see that shift and with the emotional pieces as well, a lot of participants, again, with the taboo, with the invisibility of this topic, a lot of lack of information that's, you know, it's, it's, um, not always covered. And so people, you know, in the study relied a lot on their personal knowing or kind of that instinct to navigate what that felt like, what feeling ready looks like to them. Um, and it wasn't always linear as well. I think that's important to, to point out as well is it's not sort of, you know, okay, I'm at six weeks, I'm ready. It was sort of, it was up and down. It was a lot of experimentation, um, whether that was physically or exploring things emotionally. Uh, it wasn't always sort of, again, this crossing a finish line or, or again, right. this linear trajectory of, of uh, feeling ready. Um, there was a lot of kind of back and forth internally um, in conversation with their partners. And so that was really, you know, I think important to, to kind of uncover is that, you know, it's no, it's not, it's not a cookie cutter, you know, approach. Everyone mm-hmm. is different. Everyone, everyone is going to experience their sexual health differently after birth. And, you know, it's important to, I think, normalize that in a sense of, you know, sexuality is something that is so unique and individual and it's no different in the postpartum period. Wow. And with that, you know, there was something that in this finding for me was probably one of the ones that I found most surprising just because of the meaning that it held. And that was the focus on the six week checkup, which is often sort of a, a visit with either a physician, a nurse practitioner or a gynecologist, uh, or sometimes midwife at the six week postpartum mark to usually do a physical assessment, talk about uh, the infant's health as well as you know the, the parent's health. And with that, the six week check was kind of, it, it was interesting the meaning that people ascribed to that. For some, it felt like sort of crossing a finish line of, okay, it's one more step to feeling a bit more normal. Mm. Um, others sort of said, oh, this feels like a deadline, like it is way too soon. Am I supposed to be ready? Because I am not. And that was so interesting because it wasn't necessarily that people were feeling pressured by their care providers in any way. It was just the meaning that that appointment or that that six week mark held. And that's sort of socially embedded as well as something that sort of is, you know, we don't really know why the six week or how it became a thing. But it is a thing. And we talk about that not only in, you know, a Western society or Western context, which is where this research took place, but internationally, I've done maternal health work in Zambia and Tanzania, uh, as well as in various provinces across Canada. And that six week mark, whether it's culturally embedded, socially embedded, religiously embedded at times, it's a thing. So where does that come from? And how do people actually interpret that and experience it? What I found here in Nova Scotia was that, yeah, it was sort of, for some, it felt very positive and others, it felt kind of daunting or like pressure, whether that was internal or external. Oh my gosh. I I love that you brought that up because that's literally what I wrote down to ask you about next, because that just in going along with even this, your second finding is what does that feel like to be ready? And so I was going to talk about that pressure at, at six weeks, whether, and it's not pressure for everyone, like you, like you mentioned, and that some people 
can't wait to get back into it. <laughs> but my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe if you know otherwise, but I always felt like that that six week checkup, it must be at six weeks because we see women in that postpartum period or that that third stage of labor, the delivery of the placenta, the process of involution where the uterus is shrinking back down. So checking to see that that's all happened and figure, well, if she's ready physically inside, then I guess everything else is hunky-dory. And this is where we're, when I talk to pelvic floor physiotherapists, like that's not necessarily everybody's time to be ready physically. And so, and, and you're talking about that emotional standpoint of, well, that, that just feels like a deadline or I joked and said, I actually mentioned this in class yesterday, said, so the minimum is the six week checkup. This is what happens. And, you know, oftentimes we're given the okay to have sex and resume exercise, but it's important to, to think about these other things. Clearly you, you, that was a resounding, you know, across a lot of your findings. So that's, that's pretty significant. Absolutely. And it was interesting because it came up when I asked uh, participants, when was a moment that you thought about your sexual health, whether that was in the shower, doing errands uh, right, with your partner, right. when, if there's a specific moment when it came up, what was that? And about 10 out of the 11 participants said, you know what, the six week check or right before the six week check. That's sort mm. of when they said, that's kind of when I started thinking, thinking about my sexual health and, and all that, all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah. But you know, it is a significant period for people, no matter how they sort of create meaning of that. And it is something that again, comes back to being so personal, but oftentimes, you know, there's sort of, again, a mix of information in terms of research and literature that exists. There isn't really a lot that supports the six week checkup as being a specific time that is significant. Again, it all sort of happens because they're there anyway. And, you know, they're assessing the baby, they're being assessed by um, their care provider mm -hmm. and just checking in, getting the information and resources that they need. And so everything kind of is just is packaged at that time. Uh, but we know in terms of sexual health and sexual activity in particular, um, that by no means is something that, you know, is expected, but it is in a way something that has sort of become normalized based on, on the expectations that exist around, around that postpartum checkup. So yeah, it was very interesting. Wow. I, I can, I can just assume that there is a difference between how people feel about themselves no, I'm not just assuming that because I felt that too. I'm a mother of three and I just know like there's, there is that old self that's there. There's this new person with new priorities, new, just everything. And so sometimes the sexual health piece gets juggled around, maybe becomes less important than it was pre-baby or pre-family, but yet not, not just what you're saying. Well, obviously it is still important. But how does that shuffling of those priorities, has that affect their sexual health? Maybe not just the first time after baby having sex, but how that continues during their postpartum journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, definitely. And with, you know, identity, it's something that, again, you know, people really can experience in different ways. There were some in this research that said, you know, I'm... Um, to quote one of the participants, I'm adding mother to all the things I see myself as. I'm still, you know, a sister, I'm still a wife. Um, and there were others that sort of said, you know, I'm figuring out this new role as a parent and kind of what that means for me. And it was difficult. It was really difficult to juggle and sort of find, okay, who am I now? Because I don't feel the same. And as you're saying sort of that shift 
Um, no matter what it looks like for people, I think generally there is a shift in, in that sense of identity. And with, you know, looking at um, couples and relationships and, you know, that how they sort of navigate that if, if you know, the postpartum person is, is uh, in a relationship or has a partner. Um, it, you know, it's something that, again, is, is so personal in terms of the shift and there isn't always, you know, especially I think the first time around, you're navigating lots of new things, new responsibilities as a parent, fatigue, stress, uh, all these, all these things. And sometimes, yeah, as you said, that, you know, that sexual piece, it's not that it's not there. It just maybe looks a little bit different or it's not perhaps prioritized or, or you know, enacted in, this, in the same way in terms of the relationship. And that came out a bit in the findings as well, because people talked about um, intimacy and how the d definition of intimacy changed because generally the participants in this study experienced a decrease in their sexual desire. Uh, that is their desire to engage in sexual activity. Mm -hmm. And with that, a lot of them sort of shifted the meaning of intimacy and what that actually looked like in their relationship. And some, it was interesting because there was one participant I remember who sort of brought out kind of this discourse that exists as well, or this norm um, of having sexual activity be expected within relationships or be expected as part of intimacy within relationships. And so they said, you know, for me, that's not necessarily something that I need right now. And they found new ways of still maintaining that emotional connection that was important for them, but in newer different ways. So that was, that was joking around, cooking together, flirting, um, just having time alone to just mm -hmm. cuddle on the couch or just chat away from distractions, away from, from their kids or their new babies. Those were all ways that people kind of made sure that they were still maintaining, you know, their emotional and sexual needs within the relationship but also that didn't necessarily always involve sexual activity. And, and for them that they were sort of saying, that's okay, that, well, that's not where we're at right now. That's not where I'm at right now. Um, and it could be the other way as well. Some people sort of felt a renewed sense of passion after the birth and said, wow, you know, we did this together. We, you know, we, they were there and we, you know, I delivered the baby and, and it's all these new things, but it's, again, it feels almost like this, yeah, they said this sort of sense of renewal in the relationship mm -hmm. and that sort of ignited again, you know, a bit of a sense of passion, so to speak, um, in terms of, of sexual, sexual activity and, right. and sexual health after birth. So, yeah. What a, what a range, right? Like yes, such a exactly. huge range. And then at, like with anything, there's going to be variations somewhere in the middle. And I love what you said about right now because it is that season of life I I kind of consider postpartum anytime after having a baby <laughs> I'm still postpartum you know but in a sense just because of that shift so we know it's important to talk about how do we spark these conversations more how do you get those now like those somewhat taboo topics out there into the open because clearly I mean I th I'm sure people were willing to chat with you as a researcher and a professional but it's it sounds like we should be having more of these conversations more often right definitely I mean I think it would absolutely benefit um, a lot of folks um, prenatally postnatally uh, I think there are a lot of ways to have these conversations and then ways that people do engage in these conversations, whether that's in informal settings or more formal settings with, say, a healthcare provider or public health nurse, um, or if you're just chatting with a fellow mom or a fellow parent over coffee and saying, hey, what's what's going on with you and and having that that um, that person to speak to. And in this research, interestingly, there was, you know, we talked about support and what does that actually mean? to people. We often use that word so much of, you know, people need support, new parents need support. What does that actually look like? Yeah. And with this research, what I uncovered 
was that it was important for postpartum folks to be able to be in spaces where they felt that they weren't being judged and that they could relate to other people and, and have that sort of sense of, 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 hey, you know what I'm going through, you get it. Um, and so fellow parents, again, were a huge, can be, it could be a huge um, resource for support, but also, also could be a bit of a double-edged sword. Some people said, you know, you have to kind of find the people, the people that you trust and the people that you relate to. It can be, it can be difficult sometimes. Oh, for um, sure. But with these conversations, it's, you know, something I think that can happen in more formal settings like prenatal classes. Oftentimes I emphasize the prenatal piece because we know that postpartum is often so overwhelming. There's so much information you're navigating being a new parent, you have this new baby to care for. And so that can oftentimes I think be a time that again is sort of saturated with information. Whereas mm. if we sort of can focus on that prenatally, we can often, you know, dispel some of the, you know, the myths and have accurate information so that people, you know, when they come to that postpartum phase are more prepared and have the information that they need to make informed decisions for themselves and their health. And in terms of just generally, you know, I think, again, the taboo, if I could wave a wand and then, you know, have that, that taboo gone overnight, I would. Mm. Uh, but those changes happen slowly and often in sort of intimate settings or, or you know, trusted settings where it's not necessarily out in the open, but those conversations can still happen. And as healthcare providers, you know, I think we are often seen as, as being in a position of, of initiating that or providing that space and sort of opening it up. And when I talk to family physicians, I mirror sort of my approach in this research, which was sort of asking an open-ended question of how do you feel about your sexual health right now? Or what are your thoughts on your sexual health at this moment? And that way people can bring forward whatever they want. If it's about the physical piece and the sex piece, that's great. If it's the emotional piece of, oh my goodness, I'm, you know, I'm feeling this way. Uh, if it's the social piece or, you know, issues with their relationship or questions about that, again, it can be whatever they want to bring forward because how that's defined, so how sexual health is defined is so individual. And so I always want to sort of create space and have space to have that be open to whatever the individual sees that as mm. uh, in having conversations. I love that, you know, you're, we're talking about it's, it's sexual health as a, from that holistic perspective, it's not just the act of Megan love mm -hmm. <laughs> how the babies come up with us we don't always need <laughs> that but there is more to it and it does change I, I mean I'm sure it probably would change as we grow anyway for some people but we do know and I'm sure the people listening know that having babies shifts it changes you it shifts you and so I, I love having these conversations knowledge is power having this information where should we go now with this knowledge uh, aside from just having those conversations but what else can we do to help those going through it yeah it's it's a you know a fantastic question and I think there are so many ways again to kind of you know get keep the ball rolling and with the momentum of this research it's of course mm. something I'm so passionate about um, but you know, it's, it's again, um, trying to find out more and I always pull sort of from some of the philosophers that I used in, in my research and looking at, you know, when we start to talk about sexual health and have these alternative meanings, so to speak, or alternative stories that, you know, can sort of add to the mosaic that is, that is sexual health after birth, then that sort of is, I think, the first piece to normalizing different experiences of sexual health. Um, because, you know, as, as we know, there are those norms of um, having the postpartum period or the postpartum identity, maternal identity as being desexualized, 
And that isn't necessarily helpful to people's sexual health after birth. And so that's sort of, I think, where we can, we can begin is just by having these, having this be, you know, more open um, and having different stories be shared. Because I think feeling in a way like your experience is normal or like you're not the only one going through it is important mm -hmm. with any life transition, whether that's becoming a new parent or any, you know, other, you know, family changes, um, it, it can be anything in life. We have so many transitions that, that occur in life. Um, and so it's nice, I think, to kind of feel like you, you know, you have information about what to expect, as you said, and mm -hmm. also have a way to sort of normalize your experience and to relate to others and, and, and feel okay about that. So with this, you know, it's, it's about having resources for sexual health, um, not only from a healthcare perspective, but from a social perspective. And, you know, as combining those two, I think is also something that needs to happen a bit more where, mm. you know, perhaps if, if healthcare providers had the adequate education and training to offer practical advice, I think oftentimes it's sort of a, from what I've heard or what I've seen in practice, it's often the conversation of sexual health only comes up really when it's about contraception or about breastfeeding right. um, yeah. and things like that and what contraception can be used uh, when when breastfeeding or chest feeding. Yeah. And so with that, it's sort of, again, it's very narrow. It's, that's, that is kind of all that's covered and it often isn't, it isn't adequate in terms of addressing what people actually want to hear about sexual health of, you know, is this safe? Is this okay? Is this normal for me to be feeling? Um, what can I use to help with things, even down to the practical pieces? Um, Right, we have lovely right. folks over at Venus Envy in Halifax who are great and we're starting to get it out there but even some of those practical pieces I remember certain participants talking about that in this research um, and it came actually from people who this was their second baby and they were saying you know I knew this time to ask for an estrogen cream um, or to use this lubricant and they said I didn't know that before I was sort of kind of I was going in blind before no one told me what to expect no one told me that this happens um, you know, for example, pelvic floor, if there's, you know, injury mm -hmm. or tearing, um, that recovery can be really long, it can be difficult emotionally and physically, with sort of the back and forth. And again, not feeling not feeling at all prepared, or like it was, again, it, it can happen or not, and you don't know until and until the birth mm -hmm. happens. But for some, you know, it was it was so difficult going going through that and having that frustration. Um, and so many changes with your body. So even just again, having support and resources for that, people were uh, so happy in terms of, again, again, who I spoke to, the participants loved pelvic floor physiotherapy. They really found that to influence their sexual health so positively. They're one of the only people, and and a lot of times it, it's private as well. But yes, even an, yes. an insurance can cover sometimes. But uh, that's whoever is able to have access to pelvic floor. Like they're one of the only ones that would be talking in more detail about the sexual health. I think than like you're saying, uh, generally at doctors and and well visits at that six months postpartum. It's it's the contraceptive. Okay, now what are you going to think about? Because you can have sex now. So, Hey, but they're the only ones that are having more of these conversations. And it's, uh, it's wonderful. So wonderful that we're seeing a growth in, in pelvic floor and an understanding of that and getting that out there. But it's unfortunate that we don't all have that same luxury of getting to talk to someone and having those appointments with them mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely and that was something yeah that participants spoke about that I found in this research as well was yeah the access in Nova Scotia specifically it's often if you have private health insurance sometimes it's covered but otherwise people are paying out of pocket and it can usually range from 100 to 150 dollars per session 
um, which isn't accessible for a lot of folks. And it's we know it's such an important resource from the people I've spoken to. It's so helpful for mm. their sexual health because they really get, again, that personalized approach and learn about their bodies as well. So many of them were sort of saying, you know, my physiotherapist was able, able to offer such tailored advice of, you know, okay, where, what areas were weak and giving me exercises and we worked week by week. Um, and they felt like they had a partner in that journey. I think that's also something that's so special as well. Mm, it's feeling mm. again, like you have support in that journey that is meaningful, that is helpful um, in the ways that they need. And so pelvic floor is one avenue for that, that again, people talked about in my re research. So how mm. can we make that more accessible? How can we make sure that that is something that all, all folks can access? So it's, it's all these steps I could, <laughs> I could, uh, I, I could talk for hours about, about that, but I, I love the idea of having more open conversations and making this stuff more accessible. So uh, I see, I hope to see more conversations with you <laughs> in my future uh, yes, and, and helping you uh, getting this message out there. I'm, I'm here for it. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Looking for more? Check out birthbabysleep.ca where you'll find prenatal classes, postpartum and new baby resources, and sleep support during the childhood years. You'll also find me on Facebook and Instagram at birthbabysleep. It would be awesome if you followed us wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you can, leave a review or a rating, which goes a long way for helping others to find us. That's all for now. I'm Ashley Cooley, and we'll see you back here next time.